Well, good morning, everybody. I think this is the, uh, the first time this year that I've preached with a congregation uh, here, so it's, it's lovely to see at least some of your faces above the, above the masks this morning. Tom carried his new model boat to the edge of the river. He carefully set the boat into the water and slowly let out the string so he could play with the boat on the water. He was amazed at how smoothly that little boat was sailing as he let it go. He sat in the warm sunshine on the bank of the river, admiring his handiwork, admiring the way the boat was sailing. But suddenly, a strong current in the river caught the boat, dragged it away, and the string snapped. It was gone. The little boat raced downstream, and Tom started running along the shoreline, trying to keep up with it. But it was gone. He spent the whole of the rest of the afternoon searching for it, and went home as it started to go dark in despair. The boat was gone. A few days later, as he was walking home from school, something caught his eye in a shop window. His boat. And he went in to the shop. He said, that's my boat in the window. I made it. And the man behind the counter said, I'm sorry, I sold it this morning. If you can, if you can bring me 10 euros, I'll take the sold sign off it and you can take your boat. Tom ran home, counted every cent that he had available to him. It came to 10 euros, just enough to buy back his boat, just the right amount to buy back his boat. He went in, paid the man, and on his way out, cradling his boat, he said to his boat, now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I have bought you back. First I made you, and now I've bought you back. If you're a Christian this morning, if you, if you follow Jesus, if you believe that he died for your sins and was raised again, there's a picture, admittedly an imperfect picture, but a picture of you, a picture of me in that story made by God, brought back by the death of Jesus on the cross. Just the right price. But can this be a picture for the Old Testament nation of Israel, the nation of Israel described in the Old Testament, ethnic Israel, as well as it is a picture of you and me? Last week, we saw in the first verses from Romans chapter 11 that Paul says, Paul asks the question, is Israel's rejection of God total? And he says, no, they've stumbled. They've stumbled over Christ, but there is a remnant. And now today, in these verses that we're looking at, Paul asks the question, is Israel's rejection of God final? Is there a way back for ethnic Israel? Is there a light at the end of their tunnel? Is there a, is there a happy ending for, for their story? But he's also going to ask, what part might God want you 
and me to play in that way back, or indeed that way back for anyone else who has stumbled over Christ. And he's also going to ask, how might we avoid following in ethnic Israel's footsteps? And in summary, he's going to say, God has a role for me and for you as Christians in reaching the lost of the world, those who've stumbled over Christ, including ethnic Israel. But that that must not make us proud and it must not make us haughty. So first of all, is there a way back for ethnic Israel? Is there a way that God can buy them back? Or is that sold sign, like the one on the boat in the story, is it going to stay on them forever? Has Israel, ethnic Israel, fallen beyond recovery? So Paul says, so in verse 11 of chapter 11 of Romans, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And he answers, if you've been following along with, with us in Romans, with a phrase that you might have heard before. It's the most emphatic way he can say no. By no means. There is no way. By no means. And he says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Yes, Paul says, there is a way back for ethnic Israel. As John Stott notes in his commentary on Romans, Israel had been hardened, but not rejected by God. And that's the present truth. But what about the future? Is that how it's always going to be? Well, if you look in verse 11, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15 of Romans chapter 11, we'll see, first of all, that God's mercy was offered to Israel first. And through their trespass, Paul says in verse 11, they rejected that mercy. So Israel trespasses and rejects the mercy that was offered to them. And what happens then? Rather, through their trespass, salvation comes to you and me, Gentiles, non-ethnic Jews. That mercy overflows into the rest of the world for those who accept it and believe in it. No less is on offer here than salvation for anybody who turns to Christ. And then what does Paul say? If we keep going through verse 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Israel is made jealous by God's grace, accepted by the Gentiles. And Paul, through these verses, is praying that his ministry to the Gentiles is a way of them making some of his fellow Jews jealous so that they may turn to Christ as well. So the acceptance of God's mercy begins to flow back into ethnic Israel. And then there's a fourth step. Greater blessings flow back into the rest of the world. Look at verse 12. 
Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And verse 15 as well. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So what are these greater blessings? Well, verse 12 doesn't really tell us much about what they are. It just says they exist. And verse 15 says life from death. Now, there's several interpretations there, but it's most likely that this is talking about our final resurrection into heaven. And if that's right, there is no greater blessing that can be given to us than that one day, those of us who follow Jesus will be able to be with him in heaven for all eternity. There is no greater blessing than that. Listen again as well to how much this all means to Paul. Read verses 13 and 14 with me. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and to save some of them. Paul says, I, I've got a mission from God to talk to the Gentiles, to bring the good news about Jesus to the non-ethnic Jews. Again, you and me, people in this room. But Paul's prayer is that as he's going about the work that God has for him, his own people are going to come back to knowing Jesus. His ministry to the Gentiles is in the expectation that some of his own people will be saved through them. Verse 14, in order, somehow, if somehow this is going to happen. And there's an important point for us to learn here as well. We see here that even as we're receiving God's grace, the, the news of God's grace, it's not for our own benefit, not solely for our own benefit. The Gentiles were, were becoming more dominant in the church in Rome. There were more and more of them. They were increasing in number in the church in Rome. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next bit. So it was important that they didn't start saying this grace was solely for them and it wasn't for the Jews. We benefit from God's grace because it means we can come before him. It means we're going to we're going to be, we are forgiven of our sins and that we will go to heaven. We benefit from it. So should others. We shouldn't hide it and keep it for ourselves. Even Paul hopes his visit to Rome is going to be just a stepping stone on to spreading the gospel. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So is there a way back for Israel, is, for ethnic Israel? Yes, there is. And Paul makes that really, really clear in verses 23 and 24. Even if they, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in to this olive tree that we'll look at in a little bit. For God has the power to graft them in again. So is there a way back for ethnic Israel? Yes, there is. 
So the second question I want to think about this morning is what part might you and I play in that way back? Tom, in that story that we had at the beginning, went home and there was only him counting his money. He could have probably have used somebody else's money to help him buy that boat back. Now, we know there's nothing in our, our power, in our strength, that we can do to save anybody out there. We cannot pay the price of their sin. Jesus did that on the cross. But God is gonna, Paul is going to tell us that God wants us to be an example. And we've already talked about it. To make people jealous, we have a part to play in making ethnic Israel jealous, in making the world jealous of what we have received from God. Now, we might think, ooh, hang on a minute, jealousy, that's, that's not a good thing. Indeed, covetousness is not a good thing. We see it in the, in the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This isn't covetousness. This is, as Leon Morris says in his commentary on Romans, about arousing a passionate desire in the people of the world who don't know Jesus, for them to see the same salvation that I have received, that you have received, arousing a passionate desire to receive that same salvation. Now, for you and for me, it's not going to be about saving ethnic Israel, saving the people of the Jewish church that the Jewish church would have been uh, reaching out to from Rome. Probably because we don't know that many people who are from that, from that background. But what it does mean is that anybody who we talk to out there, whether their home originally was in Galway, or whether they've come from Britain, or America, or Nigeria, or wherever else, whatever their background, whether they look like you or they don't look like you, whether they're interested in the same things as you are or not, whether you'd ordinarily judge them as being somebody that you wouldn't want to associate with or not, the gospel is for them. So why should Israel be made jealous? Well, there's some intrinsic attractiveness about a people who have been shaped by grace, God's gift of grace to them, so that when outsiders see that real grace transforming a church, they want to have it for themselves. I went on to Google earlier in the week to have a look at news headlines about evangelical Christians, about Christians who believe the Bible, or churches that claim to believe the Bible. 
the headlines that I found on Google News. In the Atlantic, how the evangelical church turned on itself. USA Today, some evangelicals spread falsehoods about COVID vaccines while the world is desperate. Are they the kinds of headlines that are going to make Israel or the world jealous? Rightly jealous of what we have received. What are the headlines that somebody who came into this church for the first time would write about it? I just want to read two verses, a few verses from Acts chapter 2 about the very first church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If we think about being a community united by God's grace to make the world jealous of what we've received from God through Jesus, what difference could those verses make? What difference could living together as Christians with that attitude make? Just a few thoughts. Just a few thoughts. We should cheerfully cooperate together for the gospel so that we see the grace that we have received overflow to each other and out into the world, however and whoever unlikely those people that we're going to reach are. Maybe even those people we dislike the most. Cheerful cooperation for the gospel. We should seek as a church to be as harmonious as we can as well. That's not saying we're not going to disagree about certain things. But when we do, we need to have constructive conversations about what we disagree on. Cheerful cooperation for the gospel. Harmony as a church as we go out into the world to reach out to the world, we need to be humble, remembering that it's not us who are changing people's lives because we didn't change our own lives, but expecting that God is going to work in other people. Cheerful cooperation for the gospel, harmonious living as a church, humbly expectant, as we go out and forgiving, forgiving each other, living together as a church in patience, 
with forbearance for each other and costly, costly love for each other. It's hard to live like that. But God wants us to be an example to the world. And finally then, there is the question of how might we avoid following in ethnic Israel's footsteps? How might we avoid that string snapping, drifting away down the river like that little boat? If you would, come back with me to 1977, to the cinema, onto a Death Star in Star Wars. And there's a classic scene where Darth Vader, the uh, black-helmeted evil leader in the Empire, has been waiting to meet Obi-Wan Kenobi, the, the force of good, and his former teacher. And he says, I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. And of course, Obi-Wan replies, what? You're only a master of evil, Darth. But Darth Vader's character is full of pride. Pride in his knowledge. Pride in his position. Pride in that he has become greater in his own mind than the one he learned from. And it's pride that Paul is going to warn us against in the second part of this passage. Pride, he's going to warn us against. He uses two illustrations as to how, as to how we are to live and how, how what he's been talking about works out. The first is about the first fruits of the dome. This goes back to Numbers uh, chapter 15, where in, in Numbers chapter 15, they're talking about offerings uh, to, to God. And the Lord speaks to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord of the first of your dome, and you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor, so you shall present it. And here, some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. If the dough, in verse 16 of chapter 11 of Romans, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And then Paul talks about this olive tree as well. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And so he goes on to expand on that in verses 17 to 24. With both of these, the olive tree with its firm roots, with the first fruits of the dough, Paul is pointing to a true Israel, a complete Israel, a complete people of God. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile who follows Jesus. 
who has faith in God. And he goes back, he goes right back to Abraham. This root on which we're, which we're built. Rooted in Abraham's faith, which was credited to him as righteousness. That first bit of the dough and the whole loaf, the whole people of God. And if we take this olive tree example, what does Paul say about it? He says, there's a whole bunch of hardened, fruitless branches that have been broken off by God. This cultivated olive tree. But not every branch has been broken off. Not every branch has been broken off. There is a remnant of branches that remain in that true people of God. And then new branches from the wild olive tree have been grafted in as Gentiles like you and me have come to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. But where does Paul say those new branches have been grafted in? He says, among what remains. Not in place of everything that remains. And yes, there is this uh, example that Paul says here in verse 19. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, yes. He says, yes, that's, yeah, that's kind of true, but it's not the point. You're grafted in among what remains. And we have no right, no right to be grafted in. We were chosen to be grafted in. As Douglas Moo says in one of his commentaries on Romans, we have earned no right to be grafted in to that olive tree. And as we've already seen in verses 23 and 24, those from ethnic Israel who come to accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour will also be grafted back in to this olive tree. And so this firm-rooted tree, rooted in faith in God, has branches that have been grown from it, branches that have been grafted in from outside of it, branches that have been snapped off and then brought back in and grafted back into it. And it forms the whole people of God. All of those who have faith in God. All of those who now accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour. So what do we what do we do with that knowledge? Well, there's this warning about becoming proud. We must not make ourselves proud with this knowledge that we've been grafted in 
to the people of God. So do not become proud, Paul says. Leon Morris, in his commentary on Romans, says that the language is like that of a gladiator in the arena in Rome with his sword standing over a felled opponent. He says, that is how we are not to be. We are not to boast like that gladiator lording it over his defeated foe. We are not to become proud like that. And Christopher Ashe, in writing on these verses, says, the moment that I become proud is when I no longer think that I need God's kindness, that I can manage on my own, that I deserve to be in God's people. And so I move towards the boundaries of grace and into the dangerous shadows of God, of pride, into the dangerous shadows of pride. Sorry. I'll read that again because I, I made a mess at the end of it. The moment I no longer think I need God's kindness, that I can manage on my own, that I deserve to be in God's people, I move towards the boundaries of grace and into the dangerous shadows of pride. So what are we to do then? If we're not to become proud, what does Paul say? He says, fear. Now that doesn't sound like a great thing to want to do, to be afraid. But Paul isn't really talking about being afraid. He's talking about fear of God, which is something slightly different. And it means we've got to maintain a, a profound respect for God, to have reverence for God. The fear is more of offending God than of God himself. And I was put in mind of uh, the sermon that Porrig did a few weeks ago when he was talking about Colossians 4. He was talking about some of the characteristics of being a Christian and the humility and meekness there. And being humble, being meek before God, having fear of God, are the antidotes to becoming proud. Paul also tells us to meditate on the kindness of God and the severity of God. His kindness to us in saving us which should push us on towards the prize. Not merely to compete in the race through life for God, but to win, to do our very, very best for him. Not to rely on our works, to rely on him, but to still do our best for him. And the God who is kind in saving us and his kindness which saves us encourages us to push on is also severe, severe to those who have rebelled against him, who have fallen. Paul is warning here of God's anger against the, the religious unbeliever, which is where we risk moving to as we become proud. So we're to continue, to continue in the kindness of God, not to continue to merit God's kindness, we can't earn it, but to lean on the kindness of God 
not to develop a proud self-centeredness that scorns any need of help. And to stand, to stand firm and fast in faith, which is how Paul says we'll stay grafted into this olive tree. There's a warning here about drifting away, about stopping believing. But God's people, God's true people, this whole olive tree, will keep believing as God tends and cares for his olive tree. Like Tom in that story cared for the boat, God will care and tend for that olive tree and preserve those who he has chosen to preserve. And one way he's going to do that is through passages like this, which encourages us, encourage us to keep believing and point us back to him as well. Eliud Kipchoge, the, uh, the great Kenyan marathon runner, posted to Instagram this week one line caption underneath a photograph of himself that said, only the disciplined in life are free. Paul, I think, would take that word disciplined, and while he'd agree with some of it, he would take it and say, only those who believe in God and follow Jesus and trust in Jesus are free, in, in life are free. But in that freedom, there is a role for us, a role for us to continue in the kindness of God, to continue in belief, to continue together as Christians so that we can reach the lost of the world. God has that role for you and for me. And that includes ethnic Israel, as we've seen. But that knowledge must not make us proud, and it must not make us haughty. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these verses. We thank you, we thank you that there's a challenge to us in them, a challenge about how we live for you. And Father God, I just pray that as we, as we step out to talk to each other for a few minutes after the service, You'd help us to, uh, you'd help us, Stephen, to start living, living out lives as a church that point people to you, that would arouse a passion in them to want to receive the grace and the salvation that we have received. Our Lord, I just pray that as we, as we go out into the world, that we'd remember the role, the task that you have for us. The warnings that Paul wrote in Romans that we've heard this morning. I pray you just help us to remember your kindness to us, but also that you want us to keep on keeping on for you, Lord, as well. I pray as well that you just help us, help to protect us from becoming proud of being grafted into that olive tree of your true people, Lord. I just pray you'd help us to, help us to grow this week, Lord, and, and to, uh, to think about what it means to live together in, in those humble, 
patient, caring, cooperative ways working for the gospel.